Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Liz Manischel. And I'm Alric Purcell. This week, we have brother directing duo Brett and Drew Pierce on the show to talk about their latest film, The Wretched. And our parents still live there, and we basically moved all of their furniture out of their house into the garage the day we got there, st- stapled up a bunch of dry erase boards, and kind of made it our battleground, like our production office in their living room. And they were okay with that. They were like, yeah, whatever you guys want, boys, just, uh, you know, take it over. Our parents are like absurdly supportive. It's coming out on VOD on May 1st, and I I was supposed to have a limited theatrical run, but, um, you know, pandemic. Um, right. Also, <laughs> I'm not a part of this interview at all, so I think that's just why I'm talking so much right now. I... You know, Arik, I think you thought I was doing a table read, but I don't know if I was. I was doing something for Lady Parts. Was it a table yeah, read? Yeah, I thought it was a table read. I thought it was It was something where you couldn't get out of it because you had to get everyone together. This was like back in, oh my gosh, probably like October or November. So this is like a long oh, time ago. I um, think we recorded a podcast version of the Lady Parts script. Ah, there you go. That sounds was. right. And once yeah. you get like all the people together in a room, it's like you can't reschedule. It was horrible. Yeah. No, it's tough. I did one of those uh, for the alternate, so I know the yeah. I know how hard it is to get those things going. Um, but yeah, but this was a really fun conversation. I I you know never I didn't know Brett and and Drew very well before this conversation, but I got to meet them in person like I think a week or two before we talked, which was really fun because I went to the Just Shoot It live show, oh, which we yeah. talk about a little bit. Brett and Drew were both listeners to the show for years, and there's like an email from like two years ago before they they made The Wretched uh, talking about how they love the show and they're about to go into their second feature and blah, 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 and we talked to him way, way back then, and then now it's like, you know like after they made the movie we finally had them on the show and like i kind of gotten to know them a little bit um especially drew uh you know we, we talked a bit on the phone and yeah it's just it's really nice you know they're really cool guys so this was a fun conversation and i was kind of going insane during this time because i was like about to make the alternate i was like uh, uh, within a month of making the movie and i had some big um like issue happen with the financing like right at that time and I was asking everybody questions about what I should do and I think I even asked you about it on another episode but they gave really great advice and they're just awesome guys and I think hearing their story about how they made their their second film and going from uh, a film of one size to a film of another size I think there's a lot to learn from that um that story but before we get to Brett and Drew uh, we have the news segment, and I and I wanted to start using the actual segment names that we've come up with. If you're okay with that, uh, we're calling this the network. Yes, um, because of, yeah. I'm mad as hell, and I can't take, can't it, take anymore. it anymore. We're basically going <laughs> to do news the way that, uh, I can't remember the character's name in that movie does news, where we just shout it out and talk about what we want to <laughs> and reference the article a little bit, but not really, and kind of go off on our own tangent. So I think the, the network's yeah. a perfect uh, name for this. So I'll, we'll, call, we'll stop calling it the news segment. We'll just call it the network. 
This week, I found a really interesting article. This one is all about the steps to be uh, to, that need to be taken in order for Hollywood to get going again. It's on Deadline. Um, it came out just a couple days ago, and they go over all these details of like what the studios are thinking about implementing in order to make like filming safe um, when uh, the the quarantine is lifted. Have you heard about any of this stuff, Liz? I heard a little bit about it, and I mean to be completely frank like the what came to mind was the adult film industry and the idea of like taking precautions while also infringing upon um costs and time and speed right. and you know um privacy and all these things so um this is fascinating like if there's a way to integrate all these procedures of testing or separation or social distancing into a film set like oh I'm, I'm such a fan, but how are we going to make this happen? What they talk about in this article, which is like pretty extensive, and then how it would apply to a low budget or uh, indie set, you know, because there's no way that an indie set is going to be able to do, uh, or maybe even should do all the things they're talking about in this article. But I think there are things that we, we should be doing on smaller sets that are included in this. So I just want to talk through these things and uh, just see what you thought. But the first one is like testing when you arrive on set, which uh, they're talking about doing rapid antigen tests right. that are possible, like you can do in 15, 20 minutes and get the results in that time. Um, and that like there's this swab testing that their people are talking about. Um, and then like doing hygiene training and the health questionnaire and having this all be like the things you do when you arrive on set. And they're talking it would take roughly, roughly like an hour and a half to get all this done. Well, you have to separate everyone while they're being tested too, right? Because if you don't have the results, then you're just exposing possibly uh, infected individuals with other non-infected individuals. So it requires right. a lot of space and a lot of uh, material like to, <laughs> to separate in all these individuals. Right, you'd probably have to give everybody different call times. So you're like, okay, well, here, I'm going to give you a call time, 30 minutes, 30 minutes, 30 minutes, 30 minutes, and then it's going to be this time until we all get together on set to actually work, assuming that everyone gets cleared and tested and everything. But will this happen on indie sets? I, I just don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, I just can't imagine that, like, when the ban is lifted and, like, you know, when I get my first call to work on a 20-person or under video shoot or 10-person or under video shoot that we're going to be doing any kind of testing. They'll probably, like... You just make sure that you don't you know don't show up to set if you're not feeling well or if you're showing symptoms. But I can't imagine doing tests like this. What do you what do you think? Well, I'm just thinking you know we're supposed to shoot in June uh, for Lady Parts, and it's like the cost. I don't even know because again we're being told different things about the availability of these tests, and um, and I assume they're not just at every corner drugstore. Like uh, what is that line for Back to the Future? Right. He's like um, El Plutonium. Yes. <laughs> Um, so it's like if they cost money to um, obtain the test, the indie film set probably would not shell out the dough to um, sacrifice like crafty for these right. tests. Right. And, and I mean, and the time too, like we have even less time than, you know, a bigger budget project would have. So I just think the time and the money, it just doesn't add up. But yeah. I mean, things that we can do on these low budget sets are have our safety meetings, which most sets have anyways. And then you could do a mini hygiene training thing uh, during that safety meeting and an announcement about social distancing. And then, um, you know, I don't know. I think that's about it. Maybe maybe before the shoot, like make sure everyone fills out a health questionnaire before they're allowed to come to set, you know, like, like yeah, you know, like NDAs reliance, or something. If you're relying on the day rate, what are you really going to put, you know, on that questionnaire? Like if you had a headache that morning, are you really going to note that you had a headache if you really need that 
X amount every day. You know what I mean? Like the stakes get higher when, when the, when we get to work again, people are really going to need that money. Um, and then, I mean, I think if there's an interesting idea, it wasn't in the article, I don't believe, but just the concept of having backups upon backups for every single role, because if you lose that crew member, like you're, you're going to be delayed again. Right. So it's like always having a crew member, but then them having, you know, having a backup for them the entire time and understudy right. for all roles. An understudy for crew. Yeah. I don't know. That seems challenging. That sounds um, insane. Yeah. The other thing they were talking about was no sharing of tools. So like the example they use, like if you were building a set, each person must have their own hammer, saw, drill, whatever, whatever. And um, so for smaller crews, that means like no passing of screwdrivers to tighten a tripod plate or sharing tape with each other or passing of monitors around. Like, I don't know. I mean, will this happen on indie sets? Like, will we actually really be able to not share tools? I I don't know. It seems kind of challenging. Does that mean the monitor will finally be clear and I'll just be able to stand by the monitor (laughs) by myself? It means like you could have like one director's monitor or like one monitor where people can like, you know, crowd around that no one touches, I guess. Maybe it's covered in plastic. I don't know. But like, you know, we have like these little small monitors. I'm sure that you've seen those too, where they just pass them around, Mm -hmm. but they won't be able to do that anymore. (laughs) It'll just be like, no, you have one monitor, whatever. But I mean, multiple people will have to touch the camera. There's just no way around that. Like you have to have like an AC probably a second AC and a, and a DP and a camera operator maybe even touch a camera. It's like, I don't know. It just seems really hard. I just remember being in film school and like when I was the DP willing to do whatever it was for the film, they put me in a gurney and they just rolled me down a hallway and I did ask about restraints and I was just like, yeah, let's do this. Like there was some right. kind of romance, right? To being on a film set and jumping in and doing whatever was asked of you. And I feel like we keep on saying things like being in a crew is being a part of a family. I mean, like, I'm sure with your wife, you're not social distancing. I'm not social distancing with my partner and my son. I'm nervous that everyone's just going to be like, we're a family. You know what I mean? Like, let's just do it. Let's let's all take this sacrifice together. And it's like, that's romantic, but very irresponsible (laughs) kinds of thinking. And I think that's probably what indie film sets are going to do. Right. Well, hopefully, I mean, hopefully there'll they'll be like a respect for it. And I think there will be, you know, the, yeah. another thing they talk about is like, you know, to keep the actors safe because they have to like not be wearing any PPE or anything like that while they're on camera, obviously. So like everybody who interacts with them would have to have gloves and, and um, you know, face ma- like face masks on at all times. I just think that's probably going to be something that we're just going to do as film crews. Like people just have to wear gloves and they have to wear some sort of mouth protection and nose protection. I don't know. I think that's something that we could easily do. Like that's not, we're kind of doing that already anyways. So why, why wouldn't we just continue to do that um, when we go out uh, for a film shoot, you know, uh, especially yeah. since we're all going to be pretty close together anyways. Like it just seems like the right move um, during this time. I do think though it removes, I mean, I always had the like fantasy of going up to an actor and like whispering an adjustment and like no one else could hear it. And I always wanted to do that. I've never <laughs> done that because everyone's like always like, what, huh? What do you want, Liz? What do you, what's changing? You know, um, but I, you can't do that. And, and I mean, whatever, it's a minor sacrifice, but th- that yeah. kind of like down low conversations going with your DP in a corner and kind of saying, well, you know, press record without telling everyone or, you know, all these right. kind of like tricks, you're going to have to communicate well in advance to have a much more robust plan. Or text it to them. <laughs> that's true. You could have secret texts between. Oh, right. that's cool. I like that, yeah. actually. 
I, I did that once on the alternate where I whispered something into one of my actors' ears, or I, I kind of pulled her aside and talked to her briefly about something I wanted to have her do that I didn't want the other actor to know, and then it totally didn't like actually produce anything exciting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was like it was like oh okay well. So the last thing I want to talk about this is just like you know you're gonna shoot your movie in June hopefully as long as everything goes well. Like, are there any like special things that you're thinking about for your set that you want to implement when you get back to work? I mean, I think there's going to be tons of hand-washing opportunities, right? I think it's going to be, like, hand-washing, lots of hand sanitizer. I think it's tough because we have puppets, so we have to integrate that whole new variable into, you know, puppet performers and monitors and people crouching in weird places. Yeah, I guess just be trying to do as much as we could, even though we're a micro-budget shoot, and, like, showing the crew that we care about them and we're not just being irresponsible. I think that's the most important thing, and having, like, safety meetings upon safety meeting for me that's what it is it's just having safety meetings making sure people know that they're supposed to bring gloves and um you know face masks to to set and if they don't have them that we'll try to provide them the best we can instead of water bottles it's like face masks did you you ever do that like we did that for bread and butter we gave everyone water bottles because it actually saved on plastic for us to provide water so it's like we get like a branded face mask for the film it's merch, it's safety, and it's a cute little <laughs> gift for the crew. It's perfect. All right. Well, I think we should move on to our next section. You've got mail. And we actually do this week, amazingly. <laughs> <laughs> Taylor Morden. I know Taylor. Do you know Taylor? I don't know Taylor. I know Taylor just only from, uh, you know, the interwebs and, and discussion yeah, online. Oh. I don't know him in real life. I just know him oh. from like a phone call. Um, <laughs> okay. But yes, well, hey, that's one up on me. <laughs> <laughs> so he's this very cool filmmaker. By the way, he just did, he just oversaw a shot for shot remake of Back to the Future. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The quarantine edition. That. Very cool. He said that we were reaching out for data on COVID-19 and streaming revenue, which I'm sure we probably mentioned it on the show. That's true. Indeed. And he said that his doc had its best month ever on Amazon during March. And then he's also seen a rise in online Blu-ray sales. Um, And his theory is that people are looking for more indie content right now because they have reached the end of their Netflix queue. You know, acknowledges this is anecdotal. I had someone ask me something similar and I wanted to know your thoughts on this, Alric, because I gave them a response and I now may regret it. This person was like near the end of helping produce a feature and she wasn't really happy to work on it, but she's like, but I think we're going to have this dearth of content in a few months and, um, you know, distributors are really going to want this film because there's not a lot being made. And so my film will have more value. That's what my producers are telling me. And so they're saying, edit the movie as soon as possible so (laughs) we can sell it to Netflix and make a bunch of money because Netflix needs content. They just sold a movie to another distributor and the distributor is emailing them every day asking for the assets, you know, for the final deliverables. How much will that impact my sale of my movie or what happens to it? I have no idea. I mean, I told her, I mean, first of all, she wasn't happy working with the directors. So I just thought that she had to get out. But I also told her that for like indie content, I don't feel like we hold the cards. I feel like we're still like the wallflowers at prom and that like it's still (laughs) going to be those like A-list projects, those bigger budget projects that are going to be in demand and sell for higher um, amounts. 
when we come out of this or while we're in in the pandemic viewing mode. Well, maybe, but I still think there is going to be a little bit of a, you know, a shortage on content for like, who knows what, what that will be if it's two months, three months, whatever. But like, you know, no one's been able to make anything for the last two months. So if you got a project in the can right before this all happened, I think you do have some kind of like leverage above other projects, you know, because yours is going to be done first. Um, so I have two other filmmaker friends who are in that situation and, um, you know, we'll see, we'll see how it turns out for, for all of us, but. I'm I'm pretty optimistic as usual about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm dying to know. I'm I just feel powerless, and I just want. I would love. I would love for the you know the tables to turn and for us to have the power. Um, right. But that feels too like yes, it feels too optimistic for me. The 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 grouch over here. Um, right. But I hope you're right. And then lastly, uh, Taylor has a movie, and the movie that he's talking about that has got an uptick is called Ska Movie, I guess, or is that skamovie.com? I don't know if that's the actual name of the movie, but if you go to skamovie.com, S-K-A movie.com, you can learn more about his film and check it out. Um, and then, yeah, and just like look up Taylor Morton and see the other film. His movie's called Pick It Up. Pick It Up. There you go. Well, let's move on to our next segment. I haven't come up with a good good title for this one yet. The audience building tip bag is what we called it before. But um, I was trying to think of a movie. I couldn't think of any movies. Like Polar Express didn't really make any sense. Um, I was like trying to find something with audience building. And there's a movie called The Audience, but I, I don't know what it is. And I don't know. I just couldn't come up with any good movie title for this. But maybe we'll come up with one later. Because if you guys haven't guessed it yet, all our segments will be movie titles. But yeah, Liz, do you have anything to share distribution-wise with us? I gave it a subject, and the subject is why getting distribution is no big deal. That's my my subject voice. Um, So the idea is, like, I I remember listening to our conversation with um, Chris Malika and Ken Frank, and we keep on saying this phrase, did you get distribution? And so I'm trying to change that. I'm sorry. I'm trying to make sure that people don't say that anymore because you can easily get distribution, right? Like, you could find a like schlubby big busted vampire distributor i always say that like the distributor <laughs> that like only distributes like elvira knockoffs you could find these people they exist distributors are always looking for content but can you get marketing <laughs> so did you get marketing should be the new question so my idea is that distribution is easy it's like you make a pie the pie is the film, and you put the pie on the windowsill. So that's distribution, putting the pie on the windowsill. This is such a a coronavirus inappropriate analogy. (laughs) Um, And then marketing is like... This is like a 1920s analogy, (laughs) but I like it. I like it. And like you could really see the pie, I think. I think we all could see like a pie on a windowsill. Marketing is telling everyone you know that the pie is on the windowsill. And marketing is also making sure that the pie looks delicious and non-suspicious so that people will eat it that you have quality pie. This is my, I think it works. So there's a lot of people who don't know anything about distribution and like just constantly, I'm meeting people who know nothing about distribution, but I just want to make it clear that distribution is just getting the film onto the platforms. It's just putting the pie on the windowsill. Um, And you could do that through getting, you know, hiring an aggregator or having a distributor put the pie on the sill. But um, what the difference is, is marketing, whether the distributor is actually getting people to walk by your house and smell the aroma and eat the pie, or whether you're doing that work. And so if you hire an aggregator, you're doing that work. And if you hire a distributor, they're supposed to be getting the pie to the people. 
Do, do you think it matters who puts the pie on the windowsill or do you think that is completely irrelevant? If you have um, a very fancy person putting the pie on the windowsill, if you have Jean-Claude Van Damme putting your pie on the windowsill, you're in a much better place than if, God, who's it not? cool person if you're or William Hung if you put William if William Hung <laughs> is putting the pie on the windowsill for you it's not as exciting right so if you have a really good brand if you have a24 if you have neon then yes it does matter it matters because you're going to be associated with that cool brand and that's gonna you know in, impact your quality and your brand as a filmmaker but ultimately you know if it's between two different boutique distributors who have equal lack of reach into the world and they both really like pie it doesn't matter because they're both going to get the pie on the window so do you think that everyone who's getting distribution offers should have the question ready to go like what kind of marketing budget is going to be allocated to my film like should that be a question we ask all our potential distributors yeah it's in your distribution agreement there's a little section that refers to a marketing cap and you can negotiate that they don't spend more than x amount like if i have a digital title and I don't think that I'm, you know, people are not really buying content on iTunes and Voodoo and Google Play, right? So it's like, I don't want people to spend too much money marketing my film because that's going to be all the money that comes in. So if I negotiate like a $15,000 marketing cap, then I've secured that they're not going to spend more than that. And the question is that you should ask, yeah, like, what is the marketing cap and who do you think the audience is? Like, who's, who do you want to come to the windowsill for us to eat this pie, Mr. and Mrs. Distributor? Um, and if they can't answer that in a satisfactory way, then they haven't thought about your film for more than 30 seconds. A proper marketing budget is a way more than $15,000. Like, if you're going to be marketing a movie that people are actually going to see, like, wouldn't they spend more like $50,000 or $100,000 marketing your film? Unless if you're doing, if you're not doing a theatrical and if you have um, a subscription VOD deal, you know, like the way you make money in film, in film distribution is piling on different deals. So like the marketing cap for bread and butter was 15 K. I think they ended up spending around 20, but they was 15 K and the reason we made any money or we never profited, but the reason we ever made, you know, good gross license fees was because we got airline deals, which do not require any marketing. And we got a subscription VOD deal, which usually doesn't, you know, like you're not going to get a larger license fee. If you market that it's on Hulu, they just give you a lump sum. They just give you a check. So it's spending the money responsibly. You want to get as many subscription VOD deals as possible and as many other like international deals that you can get, right? Like that's where you're going to make the yeah, money back. Any, anything that involves like a license fee. Yeah, because if you go for individual transactions, it's it's really hard. It's really difficult. Like people, with people not renting and purchasing things, going purchase or rental by purchase, you know, it's like how you're going to aggregate, you have to have thousands and thousands of followers. That's why it's like these niche target audience documentaries are so successful. They represent content that other people don't have access to, like, you know, diet documentaries or extreme sports documentaries or niche band documentaries, like because you can't get that content on Netflix or Hulu usually. And the film has an access point that's usually really intimate and offers a lot of value. 
Last question. So yeah. let's say you're putting your own pie on the windowsill. Yeah, I, was, I really um, wanted you to bring back the pie. I thought oh, that it was successful. Course. Okay, thank you. I love it. I also love the imagery of a pie on the windowsill because yeah, it just makes me think of like Looney Tunes and things I love. Yes, so. yes exactly. That's the image, yes. Should you be putting your own $15,000 towards your marketing? If so, like how do you spend that fifteen? Like are you hiring a publicist? Are you buying a buttload of Facebook ads? Like where would you put your $15,000? Are you getting billboards? Like for, I've heard stories of independent filmmakers buying billboard space for their for their film and that working for them. Yeah, I mean like if we're in the middle of a pandemic, I would definitely completely focus on digital ads. Um you know, I hired a publicist with a little bit of money for Speed of Life, and they secured some things for me that I could not do myself. So if I need to grow my audience digitally, then I would spend that money on Facebook ads. You can um, iterate on Facebook ads so that you're spending less and less money as closer, the closer you get to your target audience. Or, you know, improving my SEO if I really had something that was related to something else that was Googled a lot. You know, I would try to figure out a way for my film's website to come up more easily if it's related to a topic that's being talked about a lot. Like these these kind of like hacks, right? I would not spend money on a billboard just because I, I just have always assumed billboards. I mean, think of Angeline. They're very yeah. expensive, right? right. <laughs> like, um, Apparently it depends on where it is, how big it is, and then for how long you, you get it for. But you can like, apparently you can just oh, do it. it yourself. And, uh, you know, someone was saying, I think it was like, uh, you know, a few thousand dollars to get it for like a month. Or like three weeks or two weeks or something. I don't know if this yeah. this might not be accurate, um, but if I heard this on a podcast. PR, yeah, if you have really good PR that you think would draw people in who are driving by and you have like one place to send them. Yeah, absolutely. That would be baller. That'd be very, very cool. No one has the solution to where you should spend your money. But what I'm saying is like, if you have a distributor and they're not shelling out the dollars, then why are they taking a cut? This is probably the million dollar question or the you know, maybe $50,000 question is when do you uh, put your own pie out on the windowsill and when do you let someone else put it out for you? Unless you really hit the festival world or have a sales aid, unless you've like really established as, your, as yourself as a valuable piece of pie um, and the evidence is unmistakable, like, oh, you got into Sundance, you got into South by, you got the attraction of Synetic or Submarine, or, you know, you have people who are attracted to you and you feel in demand. Unless you're, unless you have those value attachments to you, um, you may think about putting the pie on the sill yourself. All right. So next section, The Player. I love this title. This is my favorite because I love The Player. It's an awesome movie, but I think like yeah, we have a weekly player or the player for this week is somebody. And so that'll be our, our like filmmaker, uh, you know, corner segment. So my friend Lex McNaughton used to work at Film Independent and now she works at Loyola Marymount in the like industry office at the film school. And the prompt was to tell a story about um, interacting with a celebrity. And so she tells a really great story about Molly Shannon. Hi, my name is Lex McNaughton. I am the career and film festival manager at LMU. I would have to say my favorite actor moment was on the last day at set for Chris Kelly's Other People. 
Molly Shannon rented an ice cream truck for the crew. She didn't eat any of the ice cream, but she was so stoked to watch people eat ice cream. And in the middle of all this, the sprinklers at the house we were at started going off while everybody's eating ice cream. And Molly Shannon's just walking around so stoked to watch people eat ice cream. First off, I wanted to give a big, big thank you to Charlie Coleman for his generous support of our Patreon page. And if you want to be like Charlie and help us out and, uh, you know, lend us a hand, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash MMIH podcast and uh, check out what we have there uh, and support the show. Even a dollar goes a long way. It's like his name is Charles, but do you know him? Like, can we no. call him Charlie? I don't know him. Well, I think we should just commit to it. Like, I like it's as if we're buddies. Charlie and us, we are friends, and that's why he gives us money. Charlie, Cole. well, Charles, I'm sorry if uh, Charlie is not how you like to be referred to. I know that our old uh, co-host of the show, Timothy, hated hated being called Tim, and everybody calls him Tim except me. So I never called him Tim. I always called him Timothy. So if you're in that boat, um, Charles, my deepest apologies. But I just like Charlie as a name. I think it's a fun name. Yeah, Charlie's a great name. We, you know, consider it if it's not your name currently. And then also, if you can't give a dollar or $4 or $10 or whatever, you can go over to our iTunes page and give us a review. Give us an iTunes review. You can also send us questions and topic suggestions to our email at podcast at mickeymoviesishard.com. We need more questions for our... You've got mail! We need more uh, questions and topic suggestions for You've Got Mail. So please... Send them over. I think we should get on with the show to our conversation with Brett and Drew. What do you think? On with the show. So, uh, so guys, just going to get right into it here. Um, before we get into the meat of the com- conversation about indie filmmaking and The Wretched and all that other good stuff, uh, can you guys just give me your one-minute bio? Drew, maybe you, you want to go first? Oh, man. Yeah, sure. I'm uh, Drew Pierce. I am, uh, I guess, a filmmaker slash storyboard artist by day. Yeah, I co-wrote and directed The Wretched, which is a horror film um, that's been playing the festival scene um, the last several months, and we're kind of working on distro right now. Uh, we've made two features. My other feature is Deadheads. It's this road trip zombie comedy. And my partner in crime is Brett Pierce, who's on the other line. I guess I'm Brett Pierce, the other co-director of The Wretched. Yeah, (laughs) and co-writer, yes. There we go. (laughs) We're clones. We do everything together. Um, But yeah, but Brett, you got to talk more, man. You got to tell us about, like, what else else you do. I mean, are you also a storyboard artist? Like, what other kind of work do you do? Have you made anything outside of those two films? Outside of those two films, it was all student stuff, which I did with Drew back in the day that no one will ever see because it's so good. But um, outside of that, I worked for a number of years as a development uh, manager and kind of executive in reality TV, um, working on individual shows such as like Ice Road Truckers, Deadliest Roads, and Axemen, and then moving into the development team and helping put together the pitches for reality shows. 
our origin story, just to dive into it a little bit. We grew up in uh, Detroit, Michigan. Made basically, we our, our dad was the effects artist on Evil Dead, so we were obsessed with movies. So when we got into high school, we basically started shooting like lots of shorts, lots of uh, like kind of features over the summer with with oh, our wow. friends, like low budget features for like you know five grand or whatever we had in our you know savings uh, that's, that's a lot true it was more like one grand <laughs> <laughs> paid for pizza <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. our film school and then um i went to school for animation and brett went to film school yeah. and with big hopes and dreams of moving to la um and then brett um kind of just as we were wrapping up school brett got cancer he got a uh, hodgkin's what? lymphoma Holy moly. Yeah, yeah. Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma wow. while I was in film school. <laughs> Jeez. Wait, yeah. what, what film school? What film school? Uh, it was Wayne State University in Detroit. Um, so it was kind of funny. Like I was going to classes there and I was kind of like, man, I learned, I was learning so much more making shorts and films with Drew and all my buddies. And they were literally like, this is a camera. This is sound. <laughs> you know, this is how you write a script. And I'm like, we've already been doing this for like five years. <laughs> so it was, it was, oh, wow. I didn't feel like I was learning anything. So when I got cancer and I kind of had to drop out of school to do Jeez. chemo and radiation, um, I just kind of like, I was like, if I get better, I'm dropping out of school and we're just going to, we're going to move to California and we're going to make movies. So that's, that was, that's what happened. So. <laughs> right. So, Obviously you did get better, right? You know? Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, are you still battling it in any way or are you like a survivor? Like what? what oh, I'm what, a survivor what? at this point. I mean, I, you know, you've you been clear for like 15 years, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Like almost like 15 clear. years. Yeah. 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 Um, so but we moved out, good. we moved out to LA and we kind of did every type of film job under the sun. We worked as PAs. We worked as like grips. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. Um, <laughs> we did all sorts of jobs, you know, editing and freelance stuff and shooting little, like we did little really super low budget sort of commercials and interview stuff a couple times and junkie jobs. And then I got a job working in animation, um, at rough draft, uh, on Futurama. Um, wow, doing like storyboards wow. and Brett wound up sort of in the animation world too for a while. He was actually working as like a sort of an assistant and writer's assistant at a uh, family guy. Oh no, I was, it was more like I was a, I started as a production assistant at American dad and then they bumped me up to an animatics editor. Um, and then shortly after that, uh, I, I quit it <laughs> because oh, really? I, wow. I, well, I was, it was a great job and wonderful people, but I realized like if Drew and I kind of both realized this, we had great, wonderful jobs and we were moving up in the animation world, but we were working on other people's stuff, not our own stuff. So we had to quit our jobs so we could go make our first movie deadheads. So wait, wow. Drew, you quit Futurama. Yeah. Well, the, the season was wrapping up <laughs> yeah, anyway. Yeah. We made like four movies that were broken into like four episodes yeah. of pop and I've seen them all. um they're great no i didn't I, I didn't like money so i uh <laughs> I mean, yeah, saved up like some money and you know like raises and like, all this stuff let's not do that and like <laughs> you know fulfillment for making an actually good funny show that people like you know that yeah. is you know still funny today yeah <laughs> and working with wonderful people that was the thing it was like hard to even leave my job at american dad because it was it was like a family there and I loved everybody, but I just, I just knew we were not going to make deadheads and not go make an independent movie if we got too much more comfortable. So talk about what you guys did when you quit your jobs. Like you, did you already have a script that you had written that you were 
like excited to make? Like, how did you guys make the movie? From we had a bunch nothing? of scripts. We had a several scripts, and and the one that sort of stuck out to us because we thought we could produce it on like a lower budget was this road trip zombie comedy. <laughs> um, and it was it was sort of a, a little uh, over the top, and we just thought that it it would sort of work in like a super low budget sort of fashion. So we we basically packed up and drove straight back to Michigan because we knew that was, we had so many friends and people we could pull in and get work cheap there and produce it cheaper in our hometown. So that's how we made all our other movies. So we uh, basically went back there, and our parents still live there, and we basically moved all of their furniture out of their house into the garage the day we got there stapled up a bunch of dry erase boards and kind of made it our battleground, like our production office wow. in their living room. Um, and they were we had, okay with that. They were like, yeah, whatever you guys want, boys, just, uh, you know, take it over. Our parents are like absurdly supportive. So we had people, you know, we, everybody, essentially half the crew slept in the house and like, you know, on the floor and in the, <laughs> wow. the handful of beds we had and out in We even had in tents the in the backyard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, and then we had a bunch of locals wow. and we made this crazy movie, um, you know, over the course of, it was like 50 or 60 days. It was like a, you know, a wow. lot of the, on a, you know, inexperienced people, uh, just, you know, pulling together. So it took a long time. We were definitely moving slow, but, uh, it was also a lot of locations cause it's a road trip movie. Um, and there's wow. action and all sorts of stuff in it. And, and what was your crew size for that movie? Um, it was probably about. 25 and you know on the big on the maybe the biggest days we were there it was like maybe 30 people but um i mean when i say that that's like my mom's there my dad's there my stepdad's there our friends from high school are coming to like you know help out just for the day to do something so it, it was yeah it was it was like uh it was like a three ring circus and we didn't have call sheets and we were just like fighting to shoot every day <laughs> it was it was it was a mess but and what and what was your budget for that we shot it for a little over a hundred thousand and then we did all the posts nice. and deliverables once we sold it for distribution for another like hundred and something thousand i appreciate you guys being honest with the budget obviously since it's so long ago who cares um you know, but uh, we like we like to go to, for honesty on the show if, if yeah. possible. But we took out student loans in order to pay. We we were trying to raise at the time we were trying to raise about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. We didn't know it was going to cost just a little over two hundred, which is pretty typical of your indie movies. It always just winds up a little bit more. Um, and so we took out uh, Brett actually took out a student loan um, for how much was it? It was 25,000 because we had somebody that was willing to give us 25,000 if we had 25,000. So as soon as we did that, we had 50. And the thing we noticed is like when we were at zero and we were trying to ask for money, everybody was kind of not interested. But as soon as we had 50, it became a lot easier for somebody to say, yeah, I'll give you five grand or maybe I'll give you 10 kind of type thing. So we ended up like, and honestly it was friends and family and friends of friends. And we just kept bugging people. And I mean, we probably had the longest list of the amount of investors on that movie for how little the budget was. I think we had like 20 to 25 investors to get to where we needed to be. Right. So it was like uh, a yeah. big mountain to climb to kind of get to what we needed. But we got it. And then we um, we just we, Drew and I went back to Michigan and I think we got there like in May and we didn't come home till sometime like late September, early October um, between pre-production and 
shooting for four or five weeks and then realizing only 60% of the movie was shot and having to go back for another four weeks and finishing the movie. That was definitely like, that was the biggest learning experience and I'm so glad we did it, but we did so many things wrong. It's a little bit of a cautionary tale because we, we had, we had both, you know, stashed away a little bit of money before we made the movie. And then obviously we pooled everything we had, you know, we were buying people craft service and spending our money on everything and paying rent in LA while we were shooting this movie and prepping the movie. And then we had to post the movie for several months and we did that back in Michigan too because we got essentially people who were super cheap for that. So it was kind of like on and off for about a year and a half. We went broke because we both were barely able to work jobs finishing the movie. Um, Right, right. You know, because it really is almost all encompassing for between like eight months to a year full time, (laughs) most movies. So we were, by the end of it, we were so broke and I didn't have a job and Brett didn't have a job. Um, so we were both, and we were both out of uh, sort of our realm of the, the jobs that we had. So it was, we couldn't just go right back. Uh, yeah, we so, tried to go right. back, but everybody essentially, like when they know you go to make your indie movie, they're kind of like, because we left those jobs, they're like, we know why you left this job because that's what you really want to do. It was humbling. Like we were going, you know, I had worked as like a storyboard artist on Futurama and made my own movie. And then I was trying to get a job at like a movie theater or a uh, Kinko's and I couldn't get hired because they're like, no, you're a filmmaker. You don't have any experience. that's relevant. Oh, wow. Wow. (laughs) It was it was painful. But I mean, eventually you guys got freelance jobs again, right? I mean, you must have. We first got back. We both kind of got we were able to string together like really terrible production assistant jobs in a lot of movies. I mean, literally, I worked on Dukes of Hazard 2. I had directed this movie back in Michigan that we were so proud of, and I was literally in a like a, a pig pit of mud measuring the size of a 500-pound pig for the production like a couple months after we finished shooting wow. to earn, you know, earn in like 100 bucks a day for being there. But ultimately, that's when Brett kind of Brett landed in the reality world and started moving up the ladder. And that's when I, I went and got a job as sort of a full-time storyboard artist. And I've kind of been doing that on and off through even the production of this movie for the last like seven years because it's sort of a it's kind of like actors, like how they wait tables. Like it's perfect for me because I can storyboard like four days a week and then take a week off if I need to for, you know, or whatever, or a couple days here and there. Cause it's all freelance. So when the movie was done and everything, where did it end up? Did you guys get into any film festivals? With deadheads, we were really lucky. We actually started at the Newport beach film festival, which was a fairly well-regarded one. Um, for you know, being on kind of the second tier when you get away from like the Sundances and the South Bys and all that stuff. Um, so we started there and then we got into like Fright Fest over in London, which was like a huge get for us because that's like one of the biggest genre festivals in the world. And after that, it was just kind of like a, it was like a snowball effect. We got into Fright Fest, we got into Sitches in in uh, Bar- near Barcelona in Spain, which is the biggest genre festival in the world, and we're this tiny little zombie movie. And then we got into the Austin Film Festival. We we had this really fortuitous like run with good festivals for such a tiny little movie. The year we kind of came out with Deadheads was kind of like the year of torture porn. So. <laughs> I think we were kind of like the cure for the torture porn at the festivals. Like everybody was getting depressed and watching all this dark shit that it was kind of nice to see a buddy zombie road trip movie that felt kind of like a John Hughes, Ferris Bueller thing, but with zombies, you know? Yeah, we got really, 
really, really lucky with that stuff. And then um, we got picked up by a U.S. distribution company called Freestyle Releasing, and they helped us get sales. Uh, they teamed us up with another international sales rep, and we got. I mean, we sold in Germany and the U.K. and Japan and France and a bunch of other territories. So we actually sold for a really, really tiny little movie. Our movie got released all around the world, and it was on Netflix for like two, two and a half wow. years, and we were on Showtime and the Movie Channel. Yeah, now it's Amazon Prime. Yeah, so it was um, wow. it was the little the little movie that could when we did it, which was great. Did you guys make the budget back uh, in sales on that movie? Well, that's the funny thing. <laughs> <laughs> is it, or is it the sad thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the thing, one of the biggest things we learned, and one of the hardest lessons is that like you kind of when you get sales reps, international sales reps, and everybody everybody starts getting their fingers in the pie. Like they're getting percentages for selling your movie, but they're also saying, you know, Hey, for us to go sell your movie, we need to spend $50,000 traveling the world and going to these markets to sell your movie. So you start, you get really excited because like initially with deadheads, our first sale was to Germany and it was for a hundred thousand dollars. And like we think in our head, Oh my God, a hundred thousand dollars. That's almost half the budget. And that's just, right. Ger just Germany, you know, right. and we're all excited. Right, right. So then you go like, well, we didn't make the best deal in the world and the international sales reps going to take like 22% of that. But they've also, after they take their 22%, they're also like, yeah, but remember that $50,000 things, we're going to take the next $50,000. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And then, wow. oh, we, uh, we paid to have a poster made and a trailer. That's another $10,000 that they count against it, you know? So yeah, they can kind of tally up a lot of expenses against you. So in a weird way, so much of it gets washed really fast and who knows how much of it's like genuinely like real accounting or fake accounting, but so much of it kind of just disappears. So like in the grand scheme of things, I, you know, I were, I think we're almost to paying back the whole budget of that movie. Um, I think we're like within wow. like 20 grand striking distance, which is nice. But I mean, if we were, if we were better at striking a deal, we would have like probably paid back a one and a half, two times the, uh, the, uh, investment. Right. Yeah. People are going to yeah, get, people are getting their money back. That, but right. Yeah. It's yeah. uh it was a, it was definitely a huge learning experience, which we've sort of been able to take into this one. Each of you guys, give me one lesson learned from Deadheads. I'll tell you our biggest thing that we talk about every time we make anything. It's, and this, this sounds so generic, but it's, we always say this, trust your instincts in every capacity. Don't ever let anybody else sort of just sort of like trump you unless it's somebody you really trust. Just trust your instincts with casting, trust your instincts with who you end up hiring as your core crew. If the scene you just shot isn't perfect or isn't working the way that you know it's supposed to work, you're the arbiter of the story. Trust your instincts 100%. Don't let people like push you as far as like schedule and all those other things. I mean, there obviously is a lot of compromise involved in movies, but just just know that when you know something, it's you're pro like there's always people pushing you other directions and always try and trust your own. The other thing I, I would say too is you're in it for the long haul with this thing. Like there's, yeah, you're going to shoot the movie. Then you're going to do post, which could take anywhere from six months to a year to kind of get everything to a good place. And then you're going to do festivals. And then you're going to try to get sales reps and distribution and all this stuff. 
the smartest thing you can do is make sure you pay yourself something to do the movie because one of the biggest mistakes Drew and I did with Deadheads is we didn't pay ourselves anything while we were shooting it. So we were just burying ourselves in debt. So when we came back from the shoot, it was so hard to survive and even work more on the movie, which we needed to for post and then beyond that festivals and distribution, which is a whole nother chunk of work yeah the movie consumes everything and you've obviously you're so pot invested after you've put like a half a year of your life into a movie shooting it raising the money or a year that you can't let anything slip obviously but you're also at a point where it's like i need to work how do i do this full-time job when i need another full-time job it's it's sort of yeah, a challenge because you, you got this maker. movie that needs all your time in the world at the same time that you need to have a job to like pay you know to pay your right rent. so we just I just like I realized like when I when we made the movie we're like we're not gonna pay ourselves because that's gonna save a bunch of money, and yeah it did but it actually didn't help because it took us forever to finish the movie and then it honestly, Deadheads made us so broke even after the sales and the the and traveling to the fests and doing all that stuff that it that's why it took us a while to make the wretched is we were honestly recovering financially you know. <laughs> The, the one the one advantage of not paying yourself like and I do agree if you can pay yourself anything is it does instill a lot of uh, you know faith and, and and goodwill from your crew and that's that's one of the things we 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 weren't paying anybody a lot of money when you're making a really indie movie so like when you go to the rest of your crew or your key positions and you say hey I'm not getting anything like that you know nobody's complaining about overages or about I'm only getting you know a hundred bucks a day or 200 bucks a day whatever you're paying people um, because if you're working for free and they know it's all passion, um, it's hard for them to sort of complain. Well, people still find a way to complain, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, that goes back to my, my, uh, advice, trust your instincts and don't hire those people. <laughs> you know, overall though, I mean, playing at those big film festivals, that's pretty amazing. It's that you can't really look at that not as a success, right? It was the best learning experience we could have ever hoped for. Yeah. I feel like we're dogging on our, our experience almost like, oh, but honestly it was the best thing we could do because we just learned so much, you know, it was like, we came out of it. Like I know what to do this time. I know the, the path. So then, um, because you're beaten down by your first film, um, you know, you have to like, you know, build yourself back up financially, then talk about how you guys got the wretched made. Like talk us through how this movie even comes about in the first place. Well, I think it was, it was a similar thing in a weird way as we were both, again, getting really comfortable at our jobs. Actually, Drew always jokes about this because it, it's more me, I think, but I'll get really comfortable at a job and everyone will be like, you're really good at this job, you're doing great, and I'll start getting promoted and, and making a little more money. And I'll call Drew like freaking out like, dude, we gotta quit our jobs. <laughs> Go make another movie, which I don't We're know. crazy. I don't know if that's smart. But it was kind of like that again. I just, you know, we kind of recovered enough from the last movie and I was just like this is what I moved to California to do this is what we both moved to California to do so we got to figure this out we kind of had gotten to the point we had been working on this this you know at the time it was like the witch movie that we had been trying to work on forever because we just loved the idea of like sort of creating our own witch with its own set of rules like our own little sort of horror movie franchise um, and it got to the point where we had so many good ideas and we loved the script so much that you kind of get to this point where you're like, this has to be made. It's this avalanche that happens. So we we basically went kind of the same thing. I didn't have to quit my job, fortunately, because I'm storyboarding. It's freelance. I can I could kind of come right back to it. Um, but Brett quit his job, and we 
again, we took the dive and basically went back to Michigan to shoot it. Oh, I'm jumping over all of the finding, you know, finding. Yeah, it always feels like finding the money sounds boring, but it's what everybody wants to know. So I guess our process as far as finding investors, we were kind of reaching out to everybody we possibly could that had, you know, we thought might invest or has money or anybody. Kind of learning from our first movie and all the mistakes we made, we, we spent a lot of time putting together really slick materials for, for investors to look at. So we always make a really slick pitch, pitch Bible, pitch booklet um, that is, it, you know, it's a collection of photos, it's color palette type stuff, it's pictures of you know, hopeful cast you want and story stuff, but we just, we make it look really slick. And then we put together sort of a financial separate booklet because this is the one that nobody even wants to look at, even investors. It's the one that's tax incentives and, um, you know, tax benefits and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. The path of the movie of where you think you could go comparative to other films that are similar to you, all these, all the stuff that like nobody really the exciting part is looking at all the original artwork and the storyboards and the cast you're hoping to get and stuff like that. So that's that's the part that really matters. But you don't include your comparisons and stuff in that that a document that you show people. financial comparisons. We put some stuff in there, but that that stuff oh, is always I mean, like film comparisons. You know, like of and, and including budgets. Yeah, like yeah. I did that in mine. Like I had like you know. Like like spring was a comparison mm-hmm. or, you know. Yeah. Um, well, what, what I would say is we kept them super separate because somebody had, somebody had imparted that like knowledge on us. They just said that like, here's the thing. People are always sold on the passion and yes, you need to do your homework and have the business plan and everything else laid out. But they were like, separate the passion part from the business part, you know, and, and present the passion part. And then when they're, when they have heard the passion part, then slip over the boring financial package so they feel like you did your homework and they understand what you're shooting for that way and leave it to them to read through that because anytime it happened to us with deadheads and we, we kind of learned doing it there is we had we had the same thing we had our kind of lookbook and packet and all that stuff mixed with all the financials and the investor pack and whenever drew and i talked about deadheads and why we really wanted to make it and the characters and what we loved about it we would get investment or people were more interested as soon as we got mired into the weeds of talking about the financials, people get bored. Even though that stuff's important, right. they would rather like study it later on their own without you sitting in front of them and decide if they think it's a good idea. So it's it's just something, you know, you want you want to get people excited. That's the most important part because you're making the movie. And yeah, they want to know that you know what you're talking about. So have that other packet ready, but you don't have to necessarily talk about that unless somebody actually asks you those questions. The, the advice that I got was like, you know, people don't really care about business plans anymore. You know, that's not really as important of a thing as it used to be. And so I kind of focus more on just like, you know, getting the treatment together and like, you know, kind of having a nice package that had like a little bit about the finances and everything. But if I, I had my, you know, uh, private placement mem- memorandum that was like the really like heavy businessy side of things that if like we ever got into like doing our actual investment, then we would have that document for them, you know? Yeah. Um, it's something like we plan for, like, but we don't present right, is, is basically right. usually it's, it's something we always have on hand to give to them. And we always give them that stuff, but we don't really, I mean, just leading with the business side of things. That's not the exciting reason why people get into film investment in the first place. Um, the, the big a million dollar question is 
Like, how? who do you pitch this to? Who are you going up to with this? We started reaching out to investor people. Meanwhile, we, we um, but like, reached but out But reaching to, out to them through through your network? Or like, are you going When Drew says or? investor people, it's just like you start with friends and family. And then you start with friends of friends. And then you just seek out, I mean, honestly, you just seek out people you know that have significantly more money than you that might be excited <laughs> by this right. stuff. And I mean, I, we send a lot of like, cold emails just like emailing people and you oh, get a really? lot of yeah you get a lot of non-responses um but you occasionally might get a response in there but you you even just you throw out all the fishing lines in every direction just to see if anyone kind of nibbles um and you never know where it's going to come we, from we started reaching out to even producers and other people that had like made movies to see if anybody was interested in trying to like come on board to like that might have access to money or might be able to help and we actually right, reached right. we reached out to uh, like one of our producer friends who had a production job and was interested in maybe like he we had sent him an earlier draft of the script and he was like not so sure about this guys I mean I, it's a cool idea um, but we sent him sort of when we finished the lookbook and had like a really polished version of the script that we were really happy with we sent it to him again and he was like I want to try and get this going through my company and so we we basically spent got a good portion of like a year trying to get it made through the company it ended up not working out they were trying to there were a lot of a lot of these uh smaller production companies um that they, they try to attach talent and use that talent to sort of leverage and get the budget up and a lot of projects don't come together that way in the indie space anymore that's not usually how pe things get greenlit it used to be that you um you know get a casting director really cheap and then you if you could manage to attach like a big name actor then you would go out and get like $5 million and go make your movie. We kind of went back and forth with that for a long time. Um, and it just wasn't moving forward. We met with a couple other producers that had different sort of schemes to get a budget together to make it. Yeah. It was always like tying into like, there's this bank and we can get this loan that we have to pay off and do this tax incentive in the state. And it all sounded kind of messy. And in the long run, right. you kind of ended up losing a little bit of your budget because you're paying like interest on stuff. There's all these bottom feeders that want essentially first in for like last in first right. out. So it means they put the last bit of money or the last half or the last three quarters of money in, but they get all their money before the people that put in the right. money first, right. which always feels a little shady and it's necessary. But a lot of times the people that believed in you that put in the money first, they don't see a dollar until all the people at the end right. see money and interest, which is kind of BS to me. That's just a system oh, yeah. that they do a lot. Did you guys have any kind of managers or agents of any kind after at this point? Or in this whole guys... messy process, we we wound up getting an agent who was at APA at the time, um, kind of through our lookbook. I don't even think he read the script. To be honest, he knew we had made another movie and he had seen um, the lookbook. And uh, we I think we sent him a couple of scripts, um, but at the time I don't even know. He he just I think he you know was sold on our sort of like enthusiasm. Um, we got a recommendation from, uh, Bruce Campbell, uh, to the, he, he was at APA at the time. Oh, really? Cause, cause do you guys know Bruce through your dad? Yeah, we, and we, we grab food with, we, he's kind of like a family friend. It's not, oh, he's almost like awesome. the uncle we see every so often. <laughs> that's cool. um, And he's a great uh, guy. Do you have this agent, uh, at APA and, um, you know, you're, you've got your really nice package and you're, you're trying to reach out to these investor types. So talk about how, how did you find the right investor types? <laughs> well, for us, it was pretty much, we just, we, we finally found somebody that we, we 
we kind of pitched the idea to, and we gave them all the materials, and they were just kind of excited about us as much as they were excited about the potential of the project and the story. So they, I feel like we're telling everything out of order, but they initially gave us like basically some seed money, like not the whole budget, but a good little chunk to say, hey, we think this is great. See if you can find the rest of the financing. And we were like, oh, okay, cool. That's great. Let's do that. We thought the production company would come in for the rest of it and they just kept spinning their wheels. And oh, along that process, this investor just said, you know what, what's the, what's the lowest number you think you can pull this thing off for? And we basically spitballed what we thought that was. And he was like, I'm going to do it myself. Like I'll, I'll fund it. Yeah, it was, it was, it was sort of a dream. Did you find them through your agent or is this a personal it's a connection? It's a friend of a friend basically. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's, there you go. That's how it always is. Right. It's always the personal connections of like how you get to where you are basically. Yeah. It's crazy. Nobody's going to believe in you as much as like, you know, friends, family or friends of the friends, like people that can actually meet you. Cause I mean, we tried through our agent and he tried too. Um, to find some financing, but honestly, nobody's ex no one's willing to kind of open the doors for a couple of guys that made a little two hundred thousand dollar zombie movie. Suddenly, we were in this situation um, where we had the budget of our movie in the bank and everything set to go, and we had to shoot it before uh, summer hit because um, the location is sort of set in the summer. But we knew we couldn't shoot in summer because it's a it's a marina. It's a really beautiful marina that we had to shoot kind of in the colder season. And we had basically a month and a half to prep everything, hire all of the crew and figure out everything. But in that, in that point, we actually had lost our producer that was previously like working on it because he actually had a stable job that they threatened to basically not let him leave. They were like, we'll fire you. So you can go make this indie movie. And he, it just was too much of a stretch for him. There are, there are some other um, sort of personal reasons he had to drop out. But we, so we basically had no producer and the budget for our indie film that we were so proud of, but we were just in panic mode. Um, I'll be honest, we were actually listening to, um, at the time, we're like putting together our crew and figuring out people. And I was listening to your podcast and I'm like, man, maybe we should get this Ulrich guy. He like uh, produces stuff. Maybe he'll help out. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> oh man, I, I would have totally like, done you it. Feel your your hustle and your like. I'm like, this guy's as desperate as we are to make things. You should have given me a shot, guys. I I would have done it if you had a budget ready to go horror movie. Let's do it. We found a guy that I had previously worked with. He was a guy I pointed out. His name's Chang Sang. He and he's fantastic. And I worked with him on this weirdly enough a Chinese TV show that shot up in San Francisco that came in from China to shoot. And I had worked for him as a production coordinator and he just killed himself making this oh, production, wow. like not sleeping, awesome. not taking care of himself, just doing every, like nine <laughs> jobs, you know? So I just walked away from that. I'm like, Drew, if we ever make a movie, we got to get Chang. <laughs> so, oh, man. so, nice. so we pulled, we pulled him in and he almost in a weird way, like he was hesitant because it's an indie movie, but he'd done him before. And, I literally had to show him the bank account with the money in the bank on my phone. I was like, we have the money. We need to start spending it so we can get this thing going in May. <laughs> and he was fantastic. And he was like, I want to bring in this other producer that I made this small indie with. He's just a great guy. And he's like an onset nuts and bolts producer. He'll make everything happen. So he brought on this other guy, Ed Polgardi, 
who had produced this other film called Laid to Rest with Chang in the past. Oh, oh nice. Yeah, they just killed it. They were just like, they were there for us. Like, you get all these producers. Weirdly enough, we interviewed other producers and talked to other people that are like, yeah, yeah, I want to produce your movie, but I'm not going to be on set. I'm going to be in California, and I'll, I'll help advise and make sure everything comes together. But we're like, no, we need guys that are in the trenches with us that are like there. Right. Know, organizing everything driving trucks whatever it needs to happen and you there's just not a lot of there's just so many different types of producers i realize i've heard a lot of producer horror stories of people who have budgets you know maybe not even like that large and then like producers will come on board and like mismanage the budget and then you know suddenly it's like rather than making it stretch it and making it work they like you know pay people you know, fair wages, but maybe more than they had to and spend money on certain things that they didn't necessarily need to. And then like, you know, it's tough. You know, that's the thing as filmmakers, we always like commit so hard, like our entire lives are in this project and every, you know, and it's, it is like the long haul, you know, you're going to be with something for like years. So finding a producer or somebody that you know is going to be there with you fighting the good fight and is a little crazy at the same time. Like somebody you trust is so crucial. Like even our case, like they just, they worked so hard for us and they cared about it just as much as we did, which is like such a rare thing. Like Ed, uh, last day of shooting. I mean, we're just having an issue with something really stupid where like we had, we had a police car in the movie that we had driven out onto a shoreline. And basically it was supposed to be like this cop car pulls up and eventually speeds away but we drove it onto the beach because the sprinkler system on the beach turned on on the grass. So it made us drive it onto the sand and the cop car just sunk like a foot and a half into the oh, sand. Gosh. Wow. <laughs> so we're trying to like dig it out so we can drive it off and all this other stuff. And we couldn't get it out of there. And at the end, it was the last day of shooting and Ed comes up to us. He's like, guys, guys, he's like, I can make it happen. I can make it happen. I know we need it. Blah, blah, blah. And he, he literally had like tears in his eyes. He started crying. He's like, it's just, everybody's worked so hard and, and I just want it to be right. And I was like, I love this guy. I love him so much. It was just cool to have that, like just these the people that were, believed in us, but believed in the project and were so passionate, you know, to right, prove, right. prove themselves and prove, you know, just to make something cool. So yeah. I, I know we're not going to talk budget on this movie, but can you just talk like crew size and, and length of shoot and sort of a little bit about how that all went? We so we 25 days with a couple of ooh, days of pickups, yes. which I want <laughs> more days. I think the biggest challenge to filmmaking, you know, indie filmmaking is that the schedules have, it's become this game of how short and how cheap can we make movies. But you know, all of our favorite movies, including indie movies, everybody's favorite sort of auteur, like filmmaker movies, their first movies, even they usually shot in the ballpark of like 30 to 40 days. Um, actually even a lot of them upwards to 60 way higher. And the, <laughs> the biggest challenge is if you're racing through it, it just, we, we, you know, we've done a lot of guerrilla filmmaking too, and just full on, just I'm holding the camera and we're shooting this angle. And then you flip to this angle and you're doing this, you it, like just that style of filmmaking. It's really hard to sort of construct a cinematic scene. If you like cinematic scenes, if, if it's a very sort of off the cuff, Kind of, uh, you know. Oh, I I hate cinematic scenes. Screw those. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, I would, the thing we just I know what you mean for sure, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, just like we were, those 25 days, three more days in L.A. when we did pickups. We kind of, 
we, we wanted to, uh, basically we had an opening scene uh, in the movie we didn't like very well that we just didn't shoot during the principal photography. So we kind of punted that saying, we're gonna shoot that later. It's probably gonna be like a one day shoot in LA. Um, our movie's got a lot of twists and turns and rules about the witch. So if there's anything that's not clear after we edit the movie, we can kind of support those things in that opening scene. So that was like a strategy to do that. But then we cut the whole movie and we just realized we had like two more days of things we needed to shoot to just fix things and make things work. Um, mm -hmm. But we had budgeted for the idea of doing pickups later. So, I mean, it was, you know, you're just trying to maximize your days and your, your time and, and, and stuff like that. And then what was your guys' crew size like? Probably like 40. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was like plus nice. or minus somewhere there. And again, we had our mom doing craft service. We our, our oh, stepdad doing craft nice. service. We had our dad who was wow. like a, the extra PA who drove everybody to set and offset every day. Like that, there's a lot really of our sweet. crew that were like friends and family. You know, our sister did set photography. I pulled in all my in-laws who live up there. Um, who basically just helped out carting stuff around and making meals. Yeah, and well, like Drew's Drew's father-in-law is an electrician, and we blew we blew the transformer. the transformer in at the main location that we were shooting at the two houses. And I mean, good thing we knew him because he knew exactly what was wrong, and he had inroads with the electrical company and got them there that day to replace the transformer. So wow. yeah, we were in a it's super amazing. remote location. <laughs> So it was kind of brutal. We were in this the uh, vacation town, kind of like the northern tip of a vacation town. Oh, wow. So we're we're a good like hour away from like hotels and places, you know, that are sort of like normal. Yeah, wow. everything's closed Crazy. after six p.m. You know. <laughs> so. Let's talk about now that the movie's done. Um, obviously, you're in your festival run. Like you've had some pretty good success. You premiered at Fantasia, right? That was where it premiered. Yeah, we, we, we premiered at Fantasia, which was awesome. It's a great festival. Um, we didn't know a whole lot. We hadn't been there before, but they, yeah. they're they a really big genre fest. The uh, the American version of Fantasia, they're like the first one. Fantastic Fest is sort of like its sister festival or sort of like the similar one here. People know that one a lot. But yeah, they, they do, you know, they do everything from like Asian action movies to weird horror movies, anything that's sort of a wacky genre. And the great part about that festival is there's a lot of industry there and a lot of um, press. So we got, when we premiered the movie, it was a great crowd. We sold out, got a lot of uh, a great response, which was awesome. Yeah, it was like, there's a, it's a giant theater too. It was like a 640 or 50 seat theater. And the, what was really great coming out is we had such a good response, but we also got like reviewed by Variety coming out of there and it was a positive review and a ton of other stuff, a ton of other sites. So it kind of gave us the boost we needed to kind of like spread the word. And it was the same thing. It was kind of a snowball effect, like getting into Fantasia resulted in just a ton of other festivals. And we went to some of the same fests that we've been in before, but it was, um, I mean, like, three or four times the amount of festivals of what we played in with deadheads. It was just, I think all festivals, but especially as genre festivals, um, they're all, um, when you get into one sort of decent one, they all sort of talk, all the programmers kind of know each other. So you start getting asked just by other festivals without even submitting like, Hey, we'd love to check out your movie or some of them, you know, have already even seen it and are asking you to just be in their festival. So it's sort of like the, the workload sort of like slows down a little bit, but especially in genre fest, I think. Right. Well, yeah, as long as you're successful and you get into that big 
premier festival, right? Like you have to have that one that pulls you into the others, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pivotal. And I mean, my other thing that I'm I'm big stickler about from learning the last time is not being passive about trying to get into one of the good festivals. Don't be just like submitting online through Film Freeway and stuff like that. I like, think it's great too, but I, I think you know, you're really doing yourself a disservice if you're not personally trying to get a hold of programmers and people at these festivals to watch your movie. Because I mean, you know, that's a lot of people get in because they have, and this isn't cheating or anything. And it's not to devalue the merit of the movie. They know somebody at that festival. So they get to go to the person directly who's making the decisions at the top. It's not you going through submitting through like film freeway and then two or three people have to watch it and say thumbs up to finally get to the person that gets the ultimate answer to say yes or no if you're in the festival. Um, it, it, it's just like, it's a fight. You got to think of like, yeah, there's just no like, handshakes yeah. of like, I'm going to put, you know, nobody, no festival programmer says I'll put in your movie cause I know you, but there definitely is sort of an advantage if you do know them, because if they really like you and they like your movie, they're just going to champion it that much harder. You really want people to, a lot of these festivals, it's it's fierce because a lot of these programmers, multiple people will watch your movie, and you're just hoping that you have a champion in there because there could be two people in the in in the room that liked your movie, but they're just soft spoken, and the other person hated your movie for some reason, and everybody has different opinions. They could negate your movie, but if you have a champion or a friend or somebody that you've like seen or talked to previously, they might like speak up and be like, "Guys, I really dug it. What did you think?" and it, it, it can go far. It's, it's, it's more organic. I think it always sounds so like shysty to filmmakers, you know, and it did to us, but there is, there's definitely a, a whole thing to playing that game and trying to make friends. Yeah. Well, just like, I mean, you work so hard shooting the movie and raising the money. You just realized like, that's the whole other fight where you gotta be like, it may not be the thing you want to do. Like Drew and I always talk about is like, man, really the only thing I care about is I like telling stories and I like making the movie all this distribution festival stuff and like trying to make the things happen. It's not fun. It's stressful. You know, it's like, I wish I didn't have to do it, but you gotta be like, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and just be like, you know, I don't like this, but I'm, I'm going to try to be the best at it. I can possibly be and like push it through because I didn't work this long and this hard to just let it like die on the vine now, you know? So <laughs> a lot of these genre fests, they, they love having things that are sort of like, you know, just off from sort of like mainstream sort of like genre stuff. <laughs> right. It's just a little weird or a little sci-fi or a little this or that. So, Oh yeah. Well, Fantasia is like on our list and you know, my producer, uh, Jeff has a lot of, has a connection there with the, one of the programmers, I think. So oh, cool. that's kind of nice, you know, and, and his films have played at like all the big film festivals, like South by Southwest and yeah. you know, um, all the, all the good ones. So, yeah. And I mean, yeah. I know a lot of, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but like a lot of people sure. get kind of angry at the festival system and then they start to say, well, it's all political or it's all like, um, you know, it's fixed or blah, blah. It's not, <laughs> man. Honestly, all the, right. the one thing you do realize when you go is there's so many programmers and the people at the top, they love movies and like they're really into it. And yeah, they're, they're managing their schedule and, and, and getting things in and trying to have this good collage of stuff that makes everybody happy. So, and most yeah, of them are nervous yeah. that they're just not going to get butts and seats. They're like worried that their program oh, yeah. or the movies they get. So a lot of times people also gripe and I, we do even that like, sometimes you see a movie there that has like a big star in it and it's terrible. But you know what? It's going to draw a lot of people to the theater and get people interested in their film festival because they have 
are two or three movies that are like junkers, you know, but they're, if they're a smaller film festival, if they're not going to necessarily get the great movie that has the star in it, you know, they might just get the, you know. Yeah. But that also makes the festivals, it makes it okay for them to then be, you know, a little more weird with another pick or pick something super small. If they, they right. can balance it with that big thing and make the fest, you know, the giant fest happy a little bit, but you can still have all this other stuff. So it's, they're trying to man be running a festival. You realize after you get to know these guys, it's not all that different than uh, making a movie because it makes no sense to run a film festival. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like kind of similar to what I was doing with the crowdfunding recently. It's like, you know, it's not necessarily about the shysty, you know, backdoor dealing or whatever. It's it's more just about letting people know about your movie. You can't just assume because you submitted it to a film festival or because you put a post on Facebook or because of any reason that people are going to even know the movie has existed unless you tell them about it. So you really have to be the champion for your film. We're in the midst of our like distribution fund, you know, trying to figure all that stuff out. And like there'll be people that they're talking to about offers and, and distribution and they'll be like, well, this is what we think it's worth. And then we'll be like, well, do you know what festivals we're in? Do you know that we got like, you know, a really good Rotten Tomatoes score? Do you know that we have a really good review and variety? And most of the time they're like, oh no, we had no idea. So we end up like sending like basically oh, a yeah, breakdown nice. of every fest and review. And you're like, yeah, you know what? People don't, know what's going on like it's not not you know not to their fault but they don't know what's going on right. just in your world with your one movie you gotta tell them i think it's worth even like after you finish your movie and as it's playing its first second third fest even going into it if you can make a press pack that sort of simplifies things for even for the festivals for anybody that ever wants to know what your movie is like and this is this is like almost a constant job but if you have anybody that has graphic design skills have them have a page that sort of like runs down who's in the cast, what's the basic, just the same way that when you have, you know, your um, lookbook, um, you almost want something to be able to send to interviewers and all these people. So they're not just pulling stuff from other online sites or other interviews you've done. Um, and for festivals and all that stuff, they're actually like getting like the best cultivated version and all the best press and all the great quotes, you know, like if you can make a page that's like the splash page of all the good quotes that reviews have said, you know, it's it just really helps to sort of simplify it because people are busy. We're Midwest guys, so we don't like right. we almost hate saying that we like sold out a festival or that like <laughs> so well because we feel like tools, like we feel like we're being braggy, you know, but they don't know. So like literally we would go to the next festival and we learned with interviews and anybody we we're talking about like try to casually bring up that you sold out Fantasia. Try to casually bring up that you just got a really good review <laughs> on Variety. You know, right, it was just right, really right, funny. Right. But it's like you kind of have to. And and then you watch other filmmakers who are so confident about being that way and don't even think about it. And I'm like, you know, I don't think of that person being braggy. They're just right. That's how the message gets out. Just talk about the kind of uh, actors you had in the wretched. Like, did you have any names? Anyone that is like super recognizable, or was it mostly unknowns? Mostly unknowns. I don't know if I'd call them unknowns. There, a lot of them are working actors. They've had, you know, a lot of day player stuff or, or bits um, on shows, on TV or shows. Or like minor series regulars or had a stint on shows as series regulars here and there. You know? Yeah. So what's yeah. the most famous thing that anybody in your movie has been in? We have a Disney kid um, who okay. on set, like, <laughs> you know, teenage girls were running up to going, oh my God, it's Piper. There's this girl, Piper oh, Curta. 
Um, I guess she was on a couple of Disney shows in Teen Beach 2, but she was just this beloved character that kind of jumped around on some different shows. Um, They also just love her in our movie, I think, (laughs) which is cool. Um, So we're hoping that like uh, her audience actually comes out and checks out our movie. And then we, you know, um, Ozzy Tesfai, uh, she was on, um, uh, you're going to have to help me, Brett. It's the oh, uh, Jane the Mindy Virgin. Project and oh, Jane okay. the Virgin and I think a couple other things. They Like our other, uh, our, our the, the dad in our movie, Jameson Jones, has been on a ton of things. He was on True Detective and, you know, they're all working actors, but n- nobody is a household name. They're all just people that have kind of been jumping around. And then did you, did you guys try to get stars in the movie at some point or was it always just like, no, we just got to go with the best working actors that we can find for the roles? We did for a minute, but flashback to the time when we lost our producer and we we're like, oh, we got to go make this movie in a month and a half. We were like, we could probably make an offer to to one or two actors. And we actually did. Um, <laughs> the. It was it was it was almost too late to be honest to even try and get another actor. But we also wrote a script that it's a it's a super ensemble cast. The lead actors in our movie are teenagers. The only role that would sort of be attractive to a leading you know a, a, a star like somebody like a household name would be probably one of the two lead like teenager roles. And um, there's not a whole lot of teenagers that really draw a crowd, especially in the right. horror space. So at right. the end of the day, we kind of debated it and we loved the actors that we had auditioned and, and really loved them in the parts. So we kind of were like, well, it doesn't really buy us much to, you know, especially if we have to put more money into certain people. Um, I mean, if you have a friend or you have somebody that like loves your project and they're going to work cheap or you have somebody that is a big time actor definitely worth it you know for sure um but uh it just didn't make sense for the movie that we wrote yeah and and like you were saying that process of trying to get cast is a really long process like everybody the thing is, is and we learned this we didn't know this because the first time we made our movie with deadheads we cast it ourselves when you make an offer to an actor for a role you can't be like well let's make an offer for this same role let's make an offer to these <laughs> right. three people you have to you go like wait. one at right. a time and then it takes like three to five weeks to get like a yes, no, or a maybe. And then you can finally make an offer to the next person. So it's kind of like, you could do that for like two years and just waste a lot of time. And you're always thinking like, here, uh, you know, the shoot date that we want to have is coming up. So it's kind of a finite thing, you know? And so you, you know, yeah, I, I worked yeah. on a major movie. I, I uh, like, you know, in my storyboard stuff, I, I worked on a Jim Henson movie previously that kind of went through that gamut. Like they, they were working on trying to put together happy time murders, this, puppet movie that came out a little while back i storyboarded it for him but i watched them go through so many different casting options i don't want to get sued so i won't even mention all the different names but they had like you know seven eight ten people that are different major stars that everybody knows their names before they picked up melissa mccarthy as the lead and it, it is it's this slow process of like every month i just could feel the passion and the energy draining out of this production like did they say yes? You know, are they going to say yes? They, they Did they read the script yet? Like there's this this slow process of trying to cast Holly, big Hollywood movies. And it's the same thing for indies, you know? Yeah, it's crazy because like, I mean, I'm not going to say your budget, but like, you know, it's, uh, you know, I would say decent, right? And, and I had another friend who had a decent budget for their feature. And when I was asking advice about casting for my feature, they, they I asked the same question. I was like, well, what should I do? And they were like, well, we had this much money and uh, we couldn't get anybody, mm-hmm. you know? 
And uh, and I was and I was like, and she was like, you have this much money. And I'm doing like higher and lower. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, so good luck, you know. And so basically, um, the, her advice, which was the same advice I think you guys gave me, was to just cast the actors that you know and that you love. If you already have actors you know and love for the roles, you know. Yeah, it always depends. There are the the random lucky things where somebody's like best friends with like a major actor or something like that. But a lot of times it is just going with people that if you know they can do the job and you know they can yeah. embody that character, like ultimately if they're awesome, people are going to be like, I don't even know who this is and they're awesome. So that's, that can be yeah. a benefit. Yeah, totally. And honestly nice. with like, with actors, with distribution now, like, yeah, it can be helpful. But I think like your friend was saying, like they weren't able to attract these bigger actors, but even in the long run, there's only so many actors that really matter to audiences anymore so even people that maybe are considered like known aren't known enough you know it's like if if the person if you're not getting somebody that's maybe a friend that you've known for years that happens to be in one of the marvel movies or in one of the star wars movies or in something that's absolutely dominating the world right now it's even hard to get people convinced on cast that are fairly well known, but just not in some of the biggest franchises mm-hmm. currently. So it, it, it's, um, and even like overseas for selling them, man, I'm really, I feel super boring because I'm talking about business, which is my least favorite part of this. <laughs> is, like, is like the overseas like markets for selling stuff. Like, yeah, you know, a recognizable face helps to a point, but if it's not like, if I don't have one of the cast of Fast and the Furious and one of the leads in it, it doesn't really matter that much. It doesn't really move the needle on. It how used much to be Kevin be Sorbo pay, and Nick Cage. You know? Yeah, yeah. So it's right. like, I, I mean, I just don't even know. I mean, in truth, I don't even know how much that matters as much as everybody tells us. Yeah, know? I think your right. concept, especially if you're in a genre movie, like equal. I mean, the cast can definitely help if you have a name, but um, your concept is king. Like, if your concept and nobody is is unique and special, and nobody else has sort of done it. Um, that can be huge. If you can pitch your movie to somebody in like two sentences and they're like, oh, that sounds cool. Um, that's as good as having a name in your movie. You're uh, going forward with the uh, you know, distribution and everything. What's next for you? Are you already working on your next feature? Like what, what's the plans post The Wretched? Well, we got a ton of irons in the fire right now. And, and a lot of those are thanks to The Wretched doing well on the festival circuit and it's looking super promising. Yeah. We're real proud of this movie. Our goal was sort of like punch our way up into making bigger projects. We love mainstream stuff. So we're going to, I mean, we've got a lot of original. Drew, you're a total sellout. I am a sellout, man. We need to make that money. We got to figure out how to make this a career. We've been, we've been doing this for, you know, on the side kind of for 15, 15, 20 years, 20 years. And um, you know, it's still not a career. Like we, we both have, sort of adjacent, you know, careers. But um, I think we, we punched our way up above our weight class with this movie. I, I'm really proud of it. And uh, That's awesome. I feel like we broke the doors of Hollywood open just a crack. Um, there's definitely a lot of interest as far as us making other things. So we're hoping we can get something going here in the next. But that's honestly, it's all on us to capitalize on those opportunities. Right. You know, it's like literally, um, you know, six months could go by and that all that juice could be squeezed, you know, and we're right, back right. to square one. But I think we're kind of at the same time. We're just so happy with this one and so proud of it. And it's exact. I mean, we got lucky. We had people that invest in our movie that said, we believe you just go make the movie you want to make, which is literally the best situation you could have. And you, I, you know, honestly, we owe them forever in a million years for that, that I just, you know, 
I can't complain about anything because I got, you know, we both got to do what we love the most and we got to just make it the way we wanted to. So, but at the same time, now we're like, we're super paranoid about the next thing because we just finished this. But, you know, I think that paranoia fuels you into like, you know, getting the work done that you need to get done to make that happen. Nice. And you're with the same agent as you were with before this. this Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, even in fact today, and I won't announce it on here is we actually got a manager today. So we've never had one of those either. Yeah. We're so excited. Exciting. So they're a really good manager and it, um, I mean, it's just one of those things. That's the result of making a movie that I feel like we punched, like Drew said, we punched over weight class that's resulted in the type of manager you want to have. So hopefully all those things, bode well but you know talk to you in six months and they'll be like hey Eric um, <laughs> do, do you want to make a little $50,000 movie in my apartment yeah that's <laughs> funny know? so and, yeah. and, and then what kind of are you like going on meetings like at production companies and stuff or like doing the water bottle tour as they call it or are you taking more like project specific meetings like what are these things that you're talking about it's now? a little bit of everything I mean I think what, anytime you make a horror film on the indie side of things and it has a little bit of um, success or juice in the festival scene and then kind of going into distro. I think it just kind of like, it opens, like Drew was saying, it opens that crack a little bit where everybody wants you to come in and pitch on some established franchises or something they're looking to relaunch. So those things open, but it also opens up like, Hey, what do you guys got next? And you know, that's on us to get another script and try to make it, get it to a spot where we feel really confident about it in the quickest time possible so right did you already have something written beforehand ready to go when this movie was in festivals or are you guys kind of starting from scratch we have some things that are written and finished but it's honestly one of those things where like i think drew and i are too much of perfectionists in a weird way that we'll never show anything until we're like this is perfect and it's in a good spot so i think we're the lessons we've learned a little bit is um, cause we'll pitch our scripts and let some people read them as they are now. And some of these are friends that are working in the industry and in even higher capacity as writers. And they're just kind of like, you guys need to be less picky. These are already in very, very good shape that you can send them out. So it, it, it's a little bit of both. Like we need new stuff, but we need to be okay with relinquishing our old stuff and letting it be read, you know? So, well, thanks guys. Appreciate it. Um, any, any last words for the filmmakers out there who are listening to this and trying to get their first film made? What, what would you say? Uh, Brick, Brick, you go first. I mean, I guess I would just say that, like, it's, you know, everybody wants to know how to do it and what the right way is to do it. And it's literally, it's, it's different for everybody. But just, like, just ask everybody that has experience doing it because you just end up skipping over so many problems and hurdles. And I wish I was better about that when I when we made our first film. But it's just, you know, you'll get there just like, you know, and there's going to be a million disasters and just be okay with a million disasters and don't let, I mean, don't let anybody tell you no or that you can't do it for some reason because you just spend time talking to, before you make your movie, you spend two, three years hearing no from so many people and, you know, eventually you just make it happen. You get yeses and it's fine. So don't, you know, just don't listen to people. It's, I mean, <laughs> good advice, <laughs> but don't listen to people that say you can't do it. It's, it's definitely uh, detrimental and it's not helping you. You'll get there. My advice is listen to everybody. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Good. I mean, good luck with whatever you're trying to make. I think just surround yourself with as many people that love you on set, that care about you, that are invested in your future or excited for you. 
um, and that, yeah, that, that are going to believe in you and that aren't going to, you know, because it's so hard to make a movie um, and we all do it because we love it. Um, yeah, that's, that's the best advice. And put your mom in crafty because she's a super <laughs> spy and she can tell you if anyone's saying bad stuff about you. Or bad, bad <laughs> nice. There you go. Amazing. I love yeah. that. All right. Well, Brett and Drew, thank you so much for the amazing conversation. This has been great. Your advice has been super helpful and good luck with the next film, man. Thanks, man. Yeah. Good luck. You too. All right, man. Good luck on the next couple months, man. I'm excited for you. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Brett and Drew for being on the show and that wonderful conversation. Check out their movie, The Wretched, also available now on all VOD platforms. Um, Amazon Prime, I'm sure. Not Prime necessarily, but on Amazon, iTunes, all those good places. Um, And thanks for IFC Midnight for uh, supporting the show. Uh, Although we recorded this before they asked if we would have Brett and Drew on. But it was just a really wonderful coincidence that their film ended up getting released by IFC Midnight, who we do work with, so... That was fun. You can check out our website at makingmoviesishard.com where you can find links to the things we talked about this episode, including trailers to uh, both of uh, Brett and Drew's films, uh, including The Wretched, of course. If you want to get in contact with us, you can send an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at podcast. I am RP on Twitter and Instagram, and Liz, you can be found at... I'm at Liz Manischel everywhere you are. And also, strange twist, I think Brett's my favorite now. Oh, really? Yeah. Why? Because um, I wanted uh, that dramatic turn to happen at the oh, end of the show. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, Brett, you just won over your brother Drew in Liz's eyes at least. You guys will always be equals to me. <laughs> um, and yeah, thanks again for a great episode. And we'll talk to you guys next week.